Well, we are three weeks into a sermon series where we're digging into the Bible to find out what does the Bible say about work. And we've already established the fact in this series so far that work is not a curse. Work is not bad. In fact, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the very first message, we saw that it's part of what being created in, in the image of God is all about. Because our God is a worker, he created us to be workers like him. But could we not just stop and be honest three weeks into this series for a minute? Work is not a curse. But doesn't it make you want to curse sometimes? <laughs> right? Even if the words never come out, some really bad words are popping in my head right now. Doesn't that happen most often at work? It's a place, it's a source of frustration. It can be. Whether you work in the home, in a classroom, on a factory floor, out in a field, or in an office cubicle, it can be one of our greatest sources of frustration because you're facing deadlines and difficult people and demanding employers. So even though work is not a curse, it is a mixed bag, right? Of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And some days, bad and ugly are winning out, right? So, if work is good, what happened to it? Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and I do hope you have a Bible with you. We use our Bibles. So get a Bible, bring a Bible with you so you can see these things for yourself. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Genesis chapter 3, this is God speaking after sin has entered the picture now. So we've got sin now in our world, and here's God. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Let me help you out. Your translation probably has a capital S for that second seed. That's because right here in Genesis 3.15, God is already, here's your first biblical promise that he's going to solve this sin problem. And he's going to send a Messiah through the seed of Eve. So there's your promise. All right, he's going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. He, Jesus, shall bruise your, Satan, head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Let me help you guys. This is not what you wish it was. She's not longing for you sexually. She's not like, oh man, got to be with my man. Come here, come here. I want you. I wish. This is a Hebrew word that's only used twice. And we're going to jump over to Genesis 4, 6, and 7 in a minute and see its second usage. News alert. This is also something that is twisted because of sin. So this is not a marriage sermon, but I at least want to point it out. Because you've got marriage and work both being impacted greatly by sin. This is a Hebrew word that means you want to rule over and dominate and control. I've been a pastor for decades. I've been married for decades. And what do we run into? Passive men who won't lead, don't want to lead, don't want to do anything. And women who sometimes, because the man has abdicated, quite frankly, 
But other times, just because of sin, do. Like, here we go. Aren't we going to do something? When are you going to do this? Change the oil on the van. Plan out the vacation. Talk about our finances. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Sin has messed up. Men are supposed to be servant leaders. And the women respond and follow and submit. It's all twisted now. And work is twisted. So your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now jump to chapter 4. It doesn't take any time for you to see the horrors of how sin impacts human relationships. We've got one brother, Cain, hating his brother Abel and being jealous over his brother Abel. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your heart's door and its desire is for you. The same Hebrew word that was in Genesis 3.16 with woman and her husband. Sin wants to rule you, control you, dominate you, but you should rule over it. Now, if you read the rest of the story, did he rule over it? No, he didn't. He went out and killed his brother. So the rest of the Bible, we've got plenty of instances of the confusion and the mess and the conflict that sin has brought into our world. And we're going to focus on the impact of what it's done to our work. Why this has gotten so much harder. Oh, these are critical verses for understanding the broken world that we now live in. Whether it's marriage or relationships or work or anything on any level. And as I read these verses, surely you could feel it with me. The intensity of how sin has rearranged the entire landscape of human existence so that it has ushered us into now a world of confusion and hurt and alienation. You see, Genesis 3 shows us the alienation between us and God. What did Adam and Eve do? Formerly, they'd walked with God and fellowshiped with him. And when they heard him coming, they ran and hid. Alienation between us and God, alienation between us and other people, and alienation between us and our work. And so here's what I want you to understand today about, about work in a sinful world now. Is work bad? No. But here's what you got to understand. And here's the, here's the sermon in a sentence if you're going to check out and think about the Bengals for the rest of your time. I, I wouldn't do that. But if you are, here's the sermon in a sentence. Sin did not destroy work, but it has distorted it in ways that can destroy you if you get sucked into them. I'm going to say it again. Sin did not destroy work, but it distorted it in ways that can destroy you if you get sucked into them. And so in the time that remains, I want to show you three twisted versions of work. That you need to be alert to and do everything you can to avoid. Here's the first. Number one. If you get sucked into doing restless work instead of rested work. You'll experience a loss of joy and peace no matter how gifted you are for what you do. 
Doesn't matter how much of a good fit or match or giftedness, you will not experience joy and peace if you do restless work instead of rested work. One of the ways that work can destroy you is that even though God created us in his image for work, he never designed for you to be driven by Work. Even God himself rested on the seventh day after creation, not because he needed to, not because he was tired, but because he wanted to model to us as his image bearers what we need to function with a rhythm of work and rest and work and rest and work and rest. But I'm actually not even speaking simply about physical rest. You need to take a day off. You need to change gears and think or do something else. I'm talking about something deeper. Deeper even than a good night's rest. Listen to me. A hurried, harried, preoccupied life that is driven by nothing but work is a twisted version of what God designed for you. He never intended for you or me to be living that way. Never. So how do we get sucked in to living like that? Old Testament scholar David Atkinson points out a very important word in Genesis and ties it to some of what our restlessness is. When you take another look at Genesis chapter 3, you'll see a word introduced that had not been around. At the end of chapter 2 verse 25, it said that Adam and Eve were naked and, do you remember any of you know? Unashamed. Unashamed. And it's talking about more than simply, I don't mind having my clothes off because I like that now that the kids are out of the house. So it's not just talking about, I have no, it's something deeper. This shame that we have of, I don't really want you to know me. I can't really be known. I can't, that's what he's talking about. That's deeper, a deeper problem than just clothes on or clothes off. Something really significant takes place because when sin entered, shame and confusion also entered with it. Old Testament scholar David Atkinson writes, shame is the sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. A sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. What is he talking about? Because he's talking about something much deeper than just putting clothes on. Let me help you. Here's what he's talking about. Surely you can relate to this. We all know that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. We all know there's something fundamentally wrong with us, but it's hard for us to admit it and even harder for us to put our finger on it and identify, but what what is it? What is wrong? What is wrong? What is wrong? And so there's this deep restlessness that can play out in different ways for different people. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. This sense of shame that came with sin, for some people, this... This means that there are people who live with a low-grade, nagging sense of guilt. Now, there are some of you that feel guilty, and you should. You're doing terrible things. There you go. You'll feel guilty. But do you not know of people that it's like, why? Why do you feel like that all the time? And you can't put your finger on it. It's a a free-floating, low-grade, just sense of guilt. Guilt that makes you restless. Others, this, this sense of shame, this unease with ourselves, causes others to strive to prove themselves constantly so they can never rest. They never feel like they've done enough. Others, the way it plays out is, is you rebel. They rebel and assert their independence. 
against any authority. And so their life is constantly churning and bucking any authorities. And so there's no rest. Others are compliant and strive to win the approval of other people. But it never seems like you can quite get it, at least not from those that you want it most. And so there's this unease with ourselves at the heart of our being. Why are we so restless and uneasy with ourselves? Well, it's because something, there's something fundamentally wrong inside, but we can't sort it out on our own. Because from the moment the sin entered into our world, we were thrown into a state of confusion regarding who we are, why we do what we do, and how will I ever know when it's good enough? I'm good. It's good. I'm good. It's good. So listen to me. Until you learn to work for the glory of God, instead of working to prove your Self or win approval, you'll keep living on the ragged edge of burnout. Burnout. Never able to rest. I would put it to you this way. Until your soul finds rest in a savior, you'll never find rest in your work. There'll never be this settled sense of, all right, I do what I can do. I can only do what I can do and I do it to the glory of God. Until you find, so, so listen, if you don't have that, that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, never mind rethinking your work and trying to get a handle on what I'm talking about here. This is fundamental first. Until you find rest in your Savior, you'll never find rest in your work. A rested work that's no longer churning. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9 that you have to lose yourself to find yourself. That's counterintuitive. See, if you're that person that you're always trying to Prove yourself, hold on to your life, promote yourself, get people to recognize you are who you are, you do what you do. It's exhausting. Until you lose yourself, you will not find yourself. You see, if you're still, if your work is still primarily all about you, and you're working for personal fulfillment, then you will work yourself to death because it's never enough. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller talks about a student at the University of California at Berkeley who just lost it in the library on campus and began running through the library screaming, you're getting ahead of me, you're getting ahead of me, you're getting ahead of me. And so they did what they always do with people like that. They took him away and they locked him up because he'd snapped. But here's what you need to understand. In a room this size, there are men and women, young and old, sitting right here. That you may not have yet started running and screaming it out loud. But you think that all the time and you feel it. There are people getting ahead of me. Somebody's getting ahead of me. There's more I should have done. I should do more. That's what I'm talking about. That no ability to rest a restless work. You haven't started running and screaming out loud yet, but you, have, you live with this nagging and overwhelming sense of not doing enough and getting behind and needing to do more. No, the Bible's all for working hard, but God wants you to experience a rest that rises, I'm sorry, a work that rises out of a deep rest in Christ. When you know you have nothing to prove, 
When you know you have nothing to prove. So it's simply a joy to work for the glory of God. When you understand the gospel of what Jesus has done for you and you enter into that rest, it should impact your work. That's why in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to read a little more about this, the early verses of Hebrews chapter 4, the writer is talking about for believers, there is a rest that you can enter into. And it has nothing to do with a good night's sleep. It has nothing to do with reducing your work hours. It has to do with that unease that David Atkinson talked about, where you're just uneasy with yourself and you don't know when enough is enough because you're not just working for the glory of God. There's another agenda. You're working to win approval or you're working to prove yourself or you're driven by this nagging sense of guilt, free-floating, low-grade. Oh, when you understand the gospel of what Jesus has done, Hebrews 4 talks about a rest that you can enter into. And if you can enter into this rest that your biggest problem has been solved by God through his son, Jesus Christ, not based on anything you do, that great truth. Listen, we got so many Christians that that's in a category unto itself and somehow it doesn't impact anything else. That truth should impact how you work. Gospel. The gospel and Jesus and redemption is not just for Sunday and your small group night. It should make all the difference on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as to who you are, why you do what you do, and how you're able to do rested work instead of... And here's, here's what also you might not realize. You just might start working less hours and doing better work. Until, listen to me, when you enter into this understanding of rest, you start doing some of your best work. This doesn't make you sloppy. This doesn't make you say, oh, I guess it doesn't matter now. Oh, you'll do some of your best work when you're no longer trying to prove yourself or win someone else's approval or just driven by a free-floating sense of just guilt that it's never enough, never enough, never enough. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, And I will give you what? Say it again. Rest. 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 So listen, never mind where you work or what your title is. I want to ask you a question. What kind of work do you do? And by that I mean, is it rested work or restless work? When you understand that you're not only created in the image of God, designed in your DNA for work, but that you're loved by God, accepted by God, with nothing to prove, it changes how you do what you do. Let me suggest to some of you, if you're that person that goes, again, I'm not wanting to offend There are sometimes unfortunate circumstances and reasons someone goes from a job to a job to a job to a job. But sometimes, listen to me, there are people who go from job to job to job to job. And would you please consider today, if that's you, that it just might have nothing to do with that job wasn't a poor fit. It's not a good match with my gift set. Consider, maybe for the first time, it could be that you've never brought the right heart to the job you do have. So that you can do rested work. Instead of restless work. Because until you have that, that next job might be better than the last job. But it's still, there's still a, yeah, but, yeah, but, 
yeah, but, yeah, but, and it's exhausting. And it's hard on you and not just you, on everybody around you, especially those closest to you. So that's the first twisted version. If you get sucked into doing restless work instead of rested work, you'll experience a loss of joy and peace that has nothing to do with a poor fit and a lack of gifting. But there's a second thing I want to point out. If you get sucked into thinking that only certain work is meaningful work, oh, you'll experience a loss of contentment and gratitude for where God has placed you right now. And notice how I said that, because very few people, if you're here and you're young, get a hold of this. Very few people work the same job their whole life. Very few. But, but listen, if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter where you work or what you do. You should not be living with this sense of, ah, ah, this is not worthy work right now. This is not important work. This is not meaningful work. I can't glorify God here. This is wasting my time. But there's something out there yet to come that is meaningful work that would, that would matter to God and where I would be a little more significant. In other words, listen to me. All work matters to God. All of it. Whatever it is, you can do it well to the glory of God. So what I'm doing right now is I'm arguing against a view of work that is dualistic. Dualism. And in the very first message, I tried to shatter the whole wall between sacred and secular. Remember that? Like there is no sense of sacred and secular in the Bible. That Oh, over here is the work that matters to God. And oh my goodness, your rewards are just piling up. Jewel, I mean, we're going to hurt our necks with the crown that we're going to have because we worked in the church, full-time Christian ministry, either missionary, youth pastor, pastor, or even just some kind of deal that helps people you know, uh, save the world, kind of we're digging wells, we're feeding hungry people, we're educating, we're teaching people to read. Don't hear me saying no one should do that. I've given my whole life. I'm over here. But hear me, your reward is no less for writing code and being a systems analyst and being a good salesperson that's honest and selling cars and cleaning carpet and mowing lawns and doing landscape and doing what you do to the glory of God. You also have the same ability for rewards. Oh my goodness, how that might change how we do our jobs and how change how Christians went out into the marketplace. There is not this sacred versus secular. But I already shattered that. Tried to. I'm actually trying to take this to a whole nother level. Here's what I'm poking against now. Okay, but even out here, there is menial work and meaningful work. Some things are just menial. It's menial. It's not meaningful. But I'm taking this whole concept further today. And I want you to understand any work done well matters to God. There are no distinctions or levels or, get this, some kind of work caste system. Right? We're not in India. Nobody has colored dots on their heads. But in a sense, don't we sometimes think, oh, he or she does put a little dot on there. It's that kind of work. It doesn't really Matt, it's menial. There's no caste system. There's no levels. There's no distinction. There's no biblical work ladder where there's some believers that are on the bottom rung, bless their hearts. They can barely glorify God with what they do. And you got to somehow in life 
get on up that ladder and start doing meaningful work. The Bible does not teach that. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. If you have a desire to do something different and you want to go back to school and get greater education or change your field, nothing wrong with it. That's not a sin unless it's driven by that unease that I was talking about where enough is never enough and I'm trying to prove myself. Nothing wrong. Just know whatever you're doing right now today is meaningful work to the glory of God that can be done well, well, well. I want you to jump over to 1 Thessalonians 4.11. I know it might be printed in the outline, but I want you to see it in your Bible because I want you to underline something because I want you to be able to go back to it and say, oh yeah, I need to think about that some more. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, we already saw two weeks ago where I took you to 2 Thessalonians 3.10 where Paul said, if a man does not work, he should not say it. Ooh, okay. Now he's teaching something else about work. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your, say it, hands. To work with your hands. As we can. Now why is that necessary? Because some people work with their hands, some don't. Why does he go out of his way to give those additional words? I'll tell you why. There was a reason. The, the New Testament is radical, you guys. The New Testament, as it was written, was constantly rocking the existing culture and the world on a number of levels regarding marriage and women and work and on and on and on. This is a radical book. And Paul's doing it right here. He's pushing against the dominant cultural way of thinking in that day. The Romans and Greeks pretty much had a mindset of work is degrading. But there is some work that's less degrading than others. And for them, the the only work that was less degrading was work with your mind. Philosophy. The orator and statesman Cicero. The orator and statesman Cicero said that if you did manual labor, it was degrading. Sordid. And if you were in retail, it was degrading. So there's the mindset of the day. And Paul comes in here and goes out of his way to say, work with your hands. With your hands. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be thinking like the culture thinks, that there's only certain work that's worthy work. No. 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 William Temple, who served as the Archbishop of Canterbury in the late 1800s, put it this way in his book, Christianity and Social Order. He said, look at the Bible. Creation, consummation, incarnation, resurrection. What do they all have in common? God with his hands in the dirt. God with his hands in the dirt. Listen to me, you don't need to hang your head or be ashamed of the kind of work you do because our God was not afraid to get his hands dirty. We are the only religion who has a God who took on flesh and stooped and came into our world. And when he arrived, he didn't decide to sit. Could he have sat at the city gates and been a part of just the thinkers and the philosophy, philosophers? Did he? What kind of job did he have? Carpenter. Work with his hands. Work with his hands. 
Oh, your work matters to God and is a reflection of the image of God, whether it is cerebral with software or whether it is hands-on by the sweat of your brow. It's all a reflection of the goodness and glory of God. So hold your head up high as an image bearer working hard to the glory of God. Because when you start thinking that only certain work is worthy work, it just breeds discontentment. And lack of gratitude and a sense of, I just got to get out of this as fast as because my life doesn't matter. I can't even glorify God. That's a lie from our enemy. All work is worthy work with a sense of dignity that you can do to the glory of God. So the first twisted thing you want to avoid is if you get sucked into restless work that's driven by trying to prove yourself, you'll experience loss of joy. Peace, no matter how gifted. If you get sucked into thinking that there's only certain work that's worthy work, it just breeds discontentment, lack of gratitude. But there's a third thing I want to point out. I'm going to do a whole message on it in the future. So I'm just going to kind of introduce it. And it's this. If you get sucked into thinking you are your work, oh, you'll experience a loss of security And confusion over what matters most. You'll make very poor decisions. You will not see clearly. You'll make bad decisions for yourself. Bad decisions for your family. Tons of confusion when you lose your very identity into your work. And these two things merge and there's no distinction. Yes, work by God in his image. All work has dignity. But it was never designed to define you. Dignity, yes. Definition, No, there must be a distinction between who you are and what you do. And so here's where we have to be careful. Yeah, work is good because it's a reflection of God. But it was never supposed to just swallow your whole identity up to where there's nothing. I am my work. I don't have another life. I don't have another thought about myself. In an article in World Magazine that I read, it was titled, So What Do You Do? by J.B. Cheney. She said this, and I thought it was interesting. She said, Europeans think that Americans are brash, self-indulgent, and rude. Probably do, for many reasons. But she began to poke, and one of the reasons was very surprising. And so she dug into it some more to say, why? They said that within five minutes of a conversation, if an American meets someone who does speak English... Within five minutes, it's not uncommon for an American to say in conversation to a total stranger, so what do you, say it, do? And she tried to figure out why is that so rude to them? And she heard back from them, they believe it's too personal and that it defines people by class. Now, don't hear me saying never ask that question again. I use it all the time. In conversation on a plane. But it is worth noting how close their way of thinking is to the biblical truth. That your work should never... In other words, what the Europeans are saying, ask me something else. Ask me what I like. Ask me my favorite wine. Ask me where I grew up. Ask me all kinds of things. But don't so quickly ask me what I do. Because so often then that's that. There's what she does or there's what he does your work was never intended by God to completely define you and if it does oh my goodness it's toxic and destructive not just to you but to others around you especially those closest 
to you. <clears throat> I'm going to date myself, but I'm old enough that when I was a boy, Chrissy Everett was the top female tennis player. In the 70s and 80s, her win-loss record was the best in tennis history ever. She had the best win-loss record ever in tennis history. But when she got close to retirement, she was terrified. And she said in an interview this, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. Now listen to what she says next. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause in order to have an identity. It's not just Chrissy Everett. That's what a midlife crisis is all about, folks, right? When a man or woman suddenly, someone younger has been hired at half what they're paying you and they do it better. And they come in with fresh, and you feel displaced and you're being pushed to the side and you're offered early retirement. And it's not just the money that makes it so painful. And you said, I thought I had a few more years. It's more than money, is it not? It hurts on a deep level because it has to do with I don't know who I am apart from what I do. And now I'm being pushed out. So who will I be for the next two decades or three decades if I don't have that job? And some of you are sitting here and I I know you work hard, but it's not just that you don't get the promotion and it would be more money. It's, It's the need that you have. I need to be recognized. I need the applause. I need the accolades. I need the because it's who I am. It defines me. It gives me my sense of worth and security. Tim Keller talks about a woman in his church who had a hard life and had been abused by men and had even spent time in prison because she was willing to do whatever men wanted her to do, even if it was illegal. But she came to Christ, came to faith in Christ and was radically transformed. And so he sat down with her because surely, you know, some people like this as a pastor, I've seen it. Where a woman just goes from bad boy to bad boy to bad boy to bad boy. It's evident how destructive this is, but she just stays with it. Why? She doesn't actually like being abused, but there's a deeper, deeper insecurity and sense of need. And so he sat down with her and said, how did you get free from what you'd been so trapped in for so long? And she says, as she came to Christ, she began to meet with a counselor, a well-meaning counselor, who advised her that men had been her sense of identity and salvation, refuge. And so the the counselor advised her, go back to school, get a degree, get your own career so that you can stand on your own two feet financially. But then she went further. And so that you can have a sense of identity in your career and success and security in your work instead of men. But she was a very perceptive woman, even as a new Christian, filled with the Holy Spirit, obviously. She said to Tim Keller, I saw a problem with that advice. I agreed that I needed to get to a new place where I could stand on my own two feet financially. So this is not a sermon saying women shouldn't be in the marketplace. Women shouldn't work. Women, I didn't just say that. But she said, I was leery of her counsel to me. Because I recognized she was simply advising me to substitute a very common female idol, men, 
for what is often a very common male idol, career, success, work. And then she looked at Tim Keller and said, I didn't want my identity to rest on men or work. I wanted to be free. Ha! Huh. Some of you need that freedom she's talking about. Some people just go from a destructive idol to a less destructive idol to a less destructive idol. Or you're just rearranging idolatry. You need repentance and freedom. She says that freedom came for her when she read Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. She said, when I read that passage, it set me free. That passage says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. She said that phrase, when Christ who is your life set me free. She said, I realized in that moment that my identity and security and sense of worth shouldn't rest on anything else except Jesus Christ. Not a man, not children, not image, not athletic abilities, not career, not work. Jesus Christ only. And she said that set her free. Some of you desperately need that freedom. What about you today? How would that phrase be filled in for you? I'm not talking about what you know you should say. Oh yeah, when Christ, who is my life? If someone was to watch you for, 30, for three months, 90 days, what would, what would that word be that's filled in? When my marriage that is my life when my children who are my life, when my grandchildren who are my life, when my job is my life, when my image that is my life, when my athletic abilities that is, if it's anything but Jesus Christ, you are vulnerable. You're vulnerable. Not just for pain and disappointment, but for devastation if your very identity is, nothing can sustain the weight of your security and identity. Everything in this world is too fragile. Marriage is too fragile. It's with another sinner. Children are fragile. They will break your heart. They make very poor trophies. Those of you that are like, my life wasn't good, but I'm living it out through my kids. Let me know how that works out. Love them. Train them. Pray for them. But if you're counting on them to make you feel good, God help you. If you keep having enough of them, one will be really stupid. At least one will embarrass you publicly on social media. Big time. And that'll be the end of that. I am a great mother. That's no. And everyone's thinking, that's your son? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we worked hard. Doesn't look like it. Don't do it. Don't put your weight on children, marriage, image, athletic abilities, or marketplace, work, career, success. When Christ, who is your, say it, life. He's got to be your life. And then listen, that doesn't cause you to love less in a marriage. You can give more. That doesn't cause you to be a worse parent. You can, that, that doesn't cause you to be a shoddy, sloppy worker. Listen to me. I'm telling you, when you've got it the way God designed it to be, you're a better parent, better spouse. You can love your spouse most when you rest in Christ most. And more, instead of needing them or needing the kids or needing the workplace accolades. God never designed for your identity to be wrapped up in anything except Jesus Christ. 
But I want to end by framing these three twisted versions of work up in the gospel and the hope. Yes, sin entered this world in Genesis 3. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the only thing. Jesus entered our world. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so there's a hope and there's a Jesus lived and died and rose again to conquer the curse of sin. And so, yes, we groan in the workplace. We groan in our marriages. We groan with our kids. We groan in our church relationships. We groan in our friendships. But it's not the only thing we're aware of. For the believer, we also feel a deep hopefulness and expectation that there's something better coming. And even right now, there's something that helps me live very differently as I go into the marketplace. Look with me at Romans 8 as we close. I want you to see this hope in the midst of groaning. Romans chapter 8. I know we groan in the marketplace. Every now and then it's not wrong. Just just do a big group groan. Not group grope. Group groan. That'll get you fired. Group groan. It's okay to groan, but watch how we're supposed to groan. There's supposed to also be a hope, a hope, a hope. Romans 8, 22. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, what? Groans and labor. I know that place you work or that home you're in, it groans. Some days it groans loud. It's about all you can hear. And labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. It's okay that you have this sense of something's wrong. This is so hard. Things are broken. Yeah, but there's more. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope, For what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Our God already took on flesh and stooped and stepped into our world to redeem everything, including work. And it's coming. And in the meantime, we get to be his ambassadors that bring just a little bit of that hope and that sense of redemption into that broken workplace. We groan, but we hope. Because we have the gospel. We have a savior. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want us to conclude by celebrating together what we're supposed to do that reminds us. Oh yeah, we groan. But there's redemption. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Oh God, how we thank you for the power of the gospel and the presence of a resurrected savior. Until we see him face to face, empower us to not only groan in a broken workplace but to be filled with hope in the power of the gospel and the ultimate soon coming consummation of King Jesus over all things, including work. Oh, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, amen.